All right, everybody, shalom and welcome to the Ishai Fleischer Show, broadcasting live from Jerusalem to the world. You're a part of it wherever you are, and shalom and welcome to Beit Midrash Sulam Yaakov. So great to be back here. I love being back here in Nachlaot. The minute I came to Nachlaot, I saw one of the world's most famous Jewish hippies, Pesach Stadlin, walking around with some plants, looking all hipped out. Wheatgrass. It was wheatgrass. Wheatgrass, that's right, of course. And that voice on the other side of uh, this table is Rabbi Mike Foyer. Rabbi Mike, shalom and welcome. Oh, it's so good to see you here at my home. Yes, I love being here at Sulam Yaakov. I love this place. It's just, I love this place. I really do. I love coming out here. And, and I'm so thankful to the good people of Hebron, who also allow me to have time to uh, do this show and spend some time with you and spend some time here in Sulam Yaakov and in, in beautiful Yerushalayim. P.S., what a gorgeous day. It's just, just, just stunning out there. It's just beautiful, crisp. Of course, every time it's a super gorgeous, perfect day, I get a little nervous because last time that I have a perfect imprint of a most gorgeous day, it was the few days right after September 11th in New York City. There, were, there was no more perfect, perfect coloration days with not a drop of dust in the sky except for the smoking, billowing back of the city. The city looked like some kind of gigantic uh, aircraft carrier as, and it was like as though smoke was coming out the exhaust. It was like, it was such a crazy thing, but we, we, anybody who was there remembers that they were unusually crisp days, as though you're walking around in the movie. Here in Jerusalem, uh, it, is, it is gorgeously crisp outside. Uh, at the same time, again, I don't know about you, and it might be the caffeine, but I'm feeling a little edgy. There's an edge out there. There's an edge out there. A lot of me. angst. There's a lot angst. Of angst. There's angst out there, and that angst is still filled with people in coffee shops and, and, and women buying new dresses and... And you know, and babies getting their diapers changed. There's a lot of normal life. There's a lot of pregnant ladies. There's a lot of normal things happening. Uh, and at the same time, there's this like, there's this like edge. And it's like, first thing, the Trump administration. No matter what, doesn't matter what side you're on. There's an edge there. Well, it's just unstable. Right, seemingly unstable in any and, case. And I think in general, Am Yisrael is waiting for the next shoe to drop. Right. And I think we're at this point in history where things have been, relatively speaking, stable in the world for quite some time. And the other shoe's going to drop soon. Right. There's definitely, there's definitely a shoe-dropping feeling around here. I would, I would agree to that. Also, if I didn't mention, welcome to the Land of Israel Network. Lots of great stuff on the Land of Israel Network. Uh, today's show, here the Ishai Fleischer Show, we're going to have Spiritual Cafe with Rabbi Mike Foyer. And then the second half of the show, uh, we're going to go to the Amona protest. Not in Amona, but here uh, at the Rose Garden next to the Knesset in Jerusalem. We're going to hear from some leading voices um, about about the fight for retaining the land of Israel. However, it is important to note that that was recorded previous to the fact that uh, Amona has been not destroyed yet as of this recording right now, but has been evacuated of most of the people living there. And that's a long story. And that's part of the uh, tension that at least I feel out here uh, today in, in beautiful, beautiful Jerusalem. And really, we're living in a time of a certain kind of duality where... where there's a there's a unprecedented beauty to our to the time that we're living in, <clears throat> and unprecedented gratitude that we should have for being able to be part of this amazing time. Uh, and at the same time, there's this like you said it very well, like this other shoe that wants to drop, and there's a sense of lack of completion, and 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 also there's a sense like like in World War One, where where there's a dug in positions. And then, and then, it, like you, you, you shell the other side mercilessly, but still people are dug in, and nothing changes. And then nothing changes, and the war like goes on like this, and people are dying, but like the war 
doesn't really move. And, and I think that there's a lot of people in there, entrenched in their positions. Um, for example, just, just one example that I've been reading up on more is, is the New York Times and their positions. And it's like you could see that they're obsessed obsessed the world has all kinds of big issues they have front page after front page is this discussion of israeli settlements and will israel annex malad to me yeah I, my mother-in-law actually said to my wife just the other day in the midst of this whole chaos in the media around trump's executive order you know stopping immigration etc she's like well on the front page in the times today it actually had a picture of malad to and discussion of annexation and my wife said i don't understand with everything that's happening in the world Okay, you can have an opinion, you can think it's really important, but with everything that's happening, why is what is essentially a bureaucratic legal shift front page New York Times head news? I asked my brother that once, who is a writer for the New York Times, why the Times is so obsessed with Israel. You know what his answer was? What? He said, who do you think reads newspapers? It's all about the Jews. It's all about the Jews. There's, there, that so much of what is happening in the New York Times, aside from the fact that historically New York Times was founded by Jews, right? That and still owned by Jewish and family. still owned by a Jewish family, right? That that so much of what's happening is an intra-Jewish struggle, which is playing out in one of the major world media outlets. And by the by, I think you could say the same thing about politics in America is slowly but surely becoming a very similar phenomenon. I mean, who were the two largest donors in the opposing parties of the last election? Uh, Adelson and, and uh, what's his name? George Soros. Soros, right. Right, and and one of the candidates on the Democratic side was actually a Jew, who apparently, according to WikiLeaks, was canned because he was a Jew. I'm a Jew, right? Uh, and from the, Vermont. And you know, people like to call J- Trump the first Jewish president, which of course he's not. But <laughs> nevertheless, his daughter and son-in-law are, and and you know, potentially very close advisors. What you're seeing, but they're very different types of Jews. Bernie Sanders and, and Jared Kushner are very different types of aye, Jews. Aye, aye. You are seeing an intra-Jewish struggle for the, for the soul of who it is to be Am Yisrael playing out on the, on the world stage. Well, this is a perfect intro to another intra-Jewish struggle that plays out on the world stage, or at least something that uh, Jews are main characters in, and that's the uh, exodus from Egypt. And, and uh, on Spiritual Cafe, we go through the Torah portion of the week, and in this case, it's Parshat Bo. That's right. Bo. Come on down. That's right, Bo. And it's, um, uh, Bo is uh, almost, it's almost the climactic event. It's, 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 it's brewing now. This one's the big brewer. And we're also going to see a tectonic shift in what the Torah is. I'll explain when we get there. Um, but this Torah portion is really the end of the plagues and, and the uh, first kind of gears of the actual movement of Ja people the exodus is actually happening here in this week's Torah portion, or is the, the wheels are turning towards actually changing. Before we get to that, let's get to the locusts. Come on down. The locusts are coming down. Uh, the locusts are going to uh, eat whatever is left. There's a lot of mentions in the Torah here about the locusts and, and the other plagues that your fathers have never seen such a thing. It's, yeah. never, it's never before and never shall be again. Egypt has never seen such a thing. Like There's something about about the these locusts that on the one hand are are like this is you know the hand of god but on the other hand there's also indications that there's a strong wind and it brings these locusts you you could still somehow logically explain it away i mean we know that up until very recent time locusts were a major issue actually in the whole agricultural cycle here in between egypt and, and israel so on one level i think it's the indication that that like you said that this is a known phenomenon but the key is it's on a scale 
which is not just a shift quantitatively, but becomes qualitative. You've never seen anything like this. Right. And, and, and when they leave, they also leave en masse. My, one of my favorite Rashi's is... It says even the that, ones that they pickled. They, <laughs> even the pickled ones. They had a triatamatim. They, they were revived. Where, where did that jar of pickled locusts go? <laughs> Um, yeah, that, took that, off. So, so some, so meaning to say, you're not going to get any pleasure out of these, uh, out of these locusts. But I think there's a, a, another element to this idea that your fathers have never seen it. But even though it's a natural phenomenon, there's something somehow even more disturbing when the natural phenomenon revealed to you that that was an illusion too. Meaning, if 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 the sky cracks open and and an alien ship comes down, you say, well, that's supernatural, right? But, you know, if, if the grass suddenly springs up out of the ground 10 feet high and grabs everybody, wraps around their arms and legs and starts to pummel them, you say, well, that's crazy. This is nature going wild. Because we have this sort of very deep need to see what's normal as normal. And because we see what's normal as normal, we can incorporate the extraordinary. And so much of what the Exodus is about is to teach you there's no such thing. There's only God. Right? And it's true, says God, in my mercy, I've given you this normative thing that you call nature. But you should understand something, that my will knows no bounds. Right. And, and, and so therefore, it's, it's specifically through the natural phenomena ex- sort of expressing themselves in unnatural ways that the final blows are given to Egypt. I, I just it was uh, coming to my mind that the frogs were famous that they climbed even to the ovens and were kind of burnt. Yes. And here, the locusts, the ones that died, are actually enlivened or revivified and, and and swept and, away, and, sw- and they kind of go away. So like they they don't like commit suicide for God. They kind of get like reborn. Is there a little sign in there? I uh, I don't, I don't know. know. <laughs> That's too deep for me. All right, now there's there's one of my favorite little. Um, you know you know Rabbi Mike that I have a, a slight obsession and interest in Kalev Ben Yifune. Yes, and it's just I'm always looking for him in, in different ways. And one of the places that he shows up is in this week's Torah portion. Uh, in my favorite commentary, which is the Balaturim. And on, on the verse, Mi v'mi ha-holchim. Mm-hmm. Who are the, what happens is, is, that, is that after the plague of the, of the locusts, um, uh, uh, Pharaoh, still negotiating, ever the negotiator, right? Right up to the end. Right up to the end. He's always negotiating. And he says, fine, 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 fine. You can go. But who exactly is going? And the phrase is, Mi v'mi ha-holchim. Who and who are the goers? It's, it's like, who's who? Me for me, like who and who exactly? Give me a list. Give me a give me a rundown. Give me give me a um, uh, what's it called? A roll call, whatever you want to call it. And and the Balaturim says when he says me for me ha'holchim, what he's saying is, why are you really pushing to go to Israel? Don't you know that only Joshua and Caleb are going to be the ones that enter the land of Israel, and the rest are going to be dead, including you. It's only me It's only this guy and this guy that are going and not even you. You're not going to benefit from it. So exactly to, to, that, uh, to that phrase is the next phrase that Moses says. He says, no, 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 no. We'll go with, oh, excuse me. We're going to go with our young people, everybody under 20, and with our older people, everybody over 60. We're all going to the land of Israel. Except for a, a part of the generation that that's going to die off, uh, but but we are still going into the land of Israel. But it's just a great it, like a, it's like a political insight. We're like political insiders, Pharaoh and Moses, who who ostensibly know one another. One says, "Come on, buddy, 
You're not even going to get to the land of Israel yourself. It's only Joshua and Caleb. You're not even going to inherit, you know? You're out of the picture. Come on. Let's cut a deal, you know? Yeah, well. That, 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 that's kind of the, the back language there. At the same time, like, um, there's this vision that, that, that um, oh, and, and the Baal Turim says that me me is Kalev. He says, Yoshua v'benyifune. That's what he says is the, uh, is the gematria, the numerical count of... Kalev and Ben Nun. Kalev and Ben Nun. Okay, right. Because the, the other way, Kalev and Ben Nun. Uh, so, you know, they make, they make that cameo, but that's, that's the discourse there. There's a real kind of political, uh, <laughs> political, political pressures being put down on, uh, on Moses. You know, cut a deal. <laughs> I, I got nothing to say about political pressures and cutting deals right now. It's a little bit too close to the bone. <laughs> Okay, well, we go on from here to... Uh, Let's bring down the hail. I want to take it all down. Wait, the hail? We had the hail. That's no, true. No, we're, no, no, you're right. We're, right. we're going... Darkness. We're going... Darkness. Okay. There's more politics in darkness. Well, because, darkness is, is a critical element, I think. Right. Okay, so th- let's see what happens. Three days of darkness falls on Egypt. Mm-hmm. And here, Rashi tells us that during these three days, two different phenomena happen. One is... The Jews are gonna gonna look into the closets of the Egyptians. They're not gonna steal anything. They just want to know exactly what, what they're taking <laughs> with them. <laughs> what do you have exactly? So that when the Egyptian tells you, "I've got nothing. I'm just a poor," you know, me, I have no silk dresses. Right. But I saw in your in your in your in your uh, there in in the armoire. There's there. like a, there's a safe there. Yes. <laughs> uh, that's so. On the one hand, Jews are gonna benefit in in a kind of uh, uncomfortable fashion, yeah. <laughs> in a way that you don't want to. Really broadcast on radio. It's it's a strange <laughs> kind of way to know that you know there that there was a court case in Egypt attempting to sue the Jews for right. for all that we took with us out of Egypt. Right, and Haman is going to write a letter, and the Medrash she's going to write a letter saying, "You see that they." I'm talking about in modern day. Oh yeah, did they? There was actually a lawyer who attempted to bring such a case. Right. Thanks, and somebody pointed out but it to was him restitution. That, yeah, exactly. Two hundred and ten years of slave labor. Right. That's just restitution. We all know that. We right. just we just don't want the. We, you know, we just don't want the Egyptians to be cheap on us. They want it. They have to pay what they, the, what they owe. Uh, although there was probably one Knesset member there who fought against the Egyptian reparations at the time. In oh. any case, in any case, uh, there's, there's, uh, there's that. But then there's another side. Here's the Jewish politics. There were some bad Jews who had become too close to the Egyptians in the Egyptian mind frame, frame of mind, and, and uh, they died during those three days. And, and, and the plague of darkness was there in order so that the Egyptians wouldn't think that you see the Jews are just like us, we're all suffering from this plague. Yeah, but it wasn't just some, actually. And it's, uh, I think, critical to note that it was four-fifths. Bang! It was, it was the majority. And um, I don't know if bad Jews is what I would call them as. I, I think that we deeply undervalue how difficult it is to imagine redemption. You know, and, and here we are sitting, Hashem, in, in the modern-day city of Jerusalem, right? And looking back, um, you know, we were speaking about the, the feeling of the other shoe dropping before. To me, that feeling has to do with darkness. It has to do with the fact that we live in the shadow of the Holocaust, but we live in such bright sunshine at the same time that it, there's something very surreal. I mean, we know exactly what humanity is capable of. We know exactly the dangers that are swirling in the world. But if we wanted to, we could just go get another cappuccino and, right. and uh, hit the movies and raise our kids well and live a life of values. I'm not talking about gross materialism. Right? Right. There's, a, there's a shadow and a light. In the, in the same way, right, the, the difficulty of conceiving of redemption, I mean, these people have been enslaved, institutionalized, but there was a material comfort that went with it. They knew where they were. Right? Redemption, they were institutionalized. Yeah, the, redemption is the great unknown. 
Absolutely. And, and, and so there is um, a, a courage, almost a foolishness, and um, a, a, an ability to be a dreamer that would take, I mean, ultimately, what do they do? They walk off into nowhere with Moshe. I mean, we live in a world of maps and images and globes, and we know where we are and how to get from here to there. If I want to, I can ask my phone. It can get me to China, right? Just picture what it was like for these Jews. And Moshe said, we're going this way. They don't know what lies over there. It's just the empty unknown. And, and let's remember, just if you're going to give it so graphically, remember what Egypt is. It's really clustered around the Nile. The rest, going both directions, all three directions, is wilderness. Uh, wilderness is a nice word. It's a, it's a, it's a completely unsurvivable desert yeah certainly to the east where they had right well in the sinai to the east and to the west the sahara desert is an impossible desert yeah, what to... if you stay with the maghreb you could stay the coastline right or whatever. you can chill um, yeah but yeah so so the um the uh the sort of um separating out the bearer right that, that happens in this darkness um i think is is part of the darkness of life not everybody makes it out right and I, I think I think that's also true for Aliyah. Uh, a lot of times, people cannot make Aliyah because of the unknown and because of fears. Uh, and the ones that make it here, a lot of times, are the lucky ones who get booted, or who who just are not making it the other place. Yes. Sometimes I, I look at a Jew who couldn't make it in the in America or in the, somewhere else, and I think to myself, he must be righteous. He must be righteous that that like Galut didn't didn't envelop, absorb, him. absorb him, envelop him. And, and that Eretz Yisrael did, there must be something simple, beautiful, and righteous. There's a problem in this world when you're, when you're, when you're good. And it says, we, we say in the Haggadah, that we were Mitsuyanim Sham, we were excellent uh, in Egypt. We were like uh, the, you know, the upper crust of society. That, that sometimes is a curse. So I want to share a thought with you, which is related. I mean, my, my grandfather actually stowed away in a boat from, from Romania. It wasn't obviously from Romania on the boat, but from Europe uh, in 1937. Literally stowed away, snuck onto the boat. They had to bribe the captain, get him off. He went to the American army to naturalize himself. Actually went back to Europe as an infantryman during World War II. Yeah, uh, crazy. There's a crazy story there. But he, his, the reaction to the people around him was, like, where are you going? What are you running away? They knew what was going to happen. It's not exactly what was going to happen. The darkness had already risen in Europe. And nevertheless, as you said, they were, it's not that they were comfortable. That's, that's where they were from. It's who they were. So, this is a story that repeats itself throughout this country. And, and that's kind of the question I wanted to ask you, is that the people who managed to uproot themselves from Europe right. or the ones who managed to survive right. Right, came here and built this country. And the question that to a certain degree plagues me, especially in light of, uh, of more recent political events, are the character traits and the worldview that allows you to uproot yourself the same ones that will feed into building a country in which you want to actually live. Because in the story of our exodus here, that generation that actually makes it out, the, the one-fifth that doesn't die in the darkness, does die in the wilderness. So they're not the ones that built the land. Sure. You make a very good point, and that's, that's, a, that's a, a classic kind of crisis that happens in... in um, there's a great book, one of my favorite, favorite books in political science is called The True Believer by Eric Hoffer. Very famous book, and... And basically, he outlines that the, the stages of the revolution, there are different people that come in. There's this, the, the great revolutionary ideologue. Uh, then there is the, the practical man of action who comes in and takes over and solidifies. 
or in big companies. You know, a big company can have an incredible product, incredible revolution, then somebody comes in a CEO to manage it. It's not always the same kind of person. Um, so so you're, you're absolutely right that it takes different traits. I'll give you another example just from my, my personal life. I see a lot of uh, people who um, leave, let, let's say, for example, I know I have some friends who, who left uh, Christianity and, and become, um, let's say, Bnei Noach or converts. Oftentimes, they are uh, not people who easily conform to the rest of society because they're iconoclasts and, and their very nature. They're people who break out of uh, uh, paradigms and cookie cutters and, and are just are not necessarily given to being, you know, normative, regular, regular folks. I struggle that, with that in my own religious life. Right. It's, it's a, it's a, I mean, probably Abraham struggled with that, right? Probably Abraham yeah. himself was not exactly also a yeah, regular. Yeah, so there was never any norm that he tried to conform right. did to. He, did, did he make it to shul at six? I don't know. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm not sure, you know? And so, and so th- that is, a, that is certainly um, a problem. But it, but that's the uh, that's the nature of the world. That's the way Hashem designed the world. You know. Yeah, but my my point was more practical, which is that since we all feel a sense of a crisis of leadership, that what are the qualities that we want to? Um, God bless you. Yeah, uh, to encourage that we want to educate for that we want to seek out and cultivate. Yesterday, I was at a Moshe Faglin event, and he's starting a new party called Zahut, and I'm considering running in that party. And uh, he said something very. And he, he says often things that times I'm things I'm just like, I didn't think of that, and, and that's interesting. He says, look, uh, the founding fathers of this country were communists and, and socialists, and we're transitioning out of that period because we're living in a different time. And that's, that's the process. There's a lot of that old regulatory and, and centralized and, and all that, that way of thinking. It's still in the system. And he's like, we're trying to transition out of that. We're trying to, and he says, he had a great line. He said, I want, I, land-wise, I want a big Israel. But statewise, I want a small state. I want a big land, but a small state. What? Yeah, I'm, I've got my worries about the capitalist model there, but we can it's get more, into that. It's some more other libertarian. Time. That's that's he, he's 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 more of a libertarian. But okay. in any case, my point is is that is, uh, the only point I'm trying to make here is there are transitions that happen. By the way, speaking of transitions, uh, one of the famous Jewish transitions. Certainly, here we're talking about the Exodus. Another Exodus that happened is the Exodus from Anatevka and Fiddler on the Roof and. And the reason I bring that up is because we got a we got a lot we had a lot of interest in emails about we our had discussion. a little fiddler roof discussion last week. Last right? week we discussed the fiddler on the roof. Uh, our friend from uh, Texas wrote wrote to us and uh, and he said, uh, "Listen, uh, you know I I don't you know I I have a different take on it." We had a long discussion. Go back to that discussion and listen because it was it was really very interesting about fiddler on the roof. So my friend uh, Dr. Adam. Uh, from Arizona writes to me, says, Hey, Isha, I wanted you to know that I really appreciate your discussion of Fiddler on the Roof on last week's podcast with Rabbi Mike. It just so ha- Listen to this. It just so happened that I had tickets for later that same week to see the show for the first time with my kids. Wow. Twin girls ages nine, twin boys ages seven, and with my mother. Oh, chazak me'amat. Yeah, good for you. Uh, I played the segment of the episode for all of them just before I went to the show. It was uncanny how timely it was. I had seen the show several times myself, but not for many years. I'd forgotten how sad it is, yes. like you said, especially at the end. Uh, but your and Rabbi Mike's comments were so insightful. Thank you. Well, I'm so glad. That, so so, so it, it was a, a Gentile from Texas, a discussion in Jerusalem that led back to a show in Phoenix. And, and <laughs> you know, we... And That's we all, how the world works. Right. And we experienced, we experienced the, uh, the, the exodus, uh, the exodus from Anatevka. And again, there was, there's a version... Of events that that the Jewish people uh, that 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 excuse me that um, Tevya the Tevya the milkman 
ends up in Eretz Yisrael, in Eretz Yisrael, in the land of milk and honey. Okay, so we went through uh, the locusts, we went through the darkness, right? And this darkness, by the way, was a debilitating kind of darkness, a darkness that was... Um, uh, paralyzing. People, paralyzing, you couldn't move. In a way, you could say it was, a, it was a, like the world turned off. Yeah, listen, I mean, there, there's a darkness which affects the eyes, and there's a darkness which affects the heart. And this was the latter, meaning there was an eye level in which it's actually dark, I can't see. But we know this today, there's a tremendous darkness on people's hearts today which prevents us from taking action. Whether it's a darkness of uncertainty and unwillingness to assert values, or whether it's a, a darkness of um, a fear of judgment, there's so many faces to it, but the inaction inevitably allows evil to rise. That's an interesting way you, 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 you explain the, uh, uh, the, the plague of darkness. Um, t- to me, just and if I envision myself in a plague of darkness, I'm thinking to myself, like, it's like the ultimate God, the opposite of, of creation. Mm-hmm. God's like, you know, when I, the first thing I said is, let there be light. Right. And now I'm like, turn off, world. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you've ever experienced depression, but this, in a certain way, is the definition of what depression is. It's a, it's a heaviness mm-hmm. and a darkness and an inability to see outside of my own emotive state. And it's completely draining. Because as you said, God's desire that there be life was at first expressed by let there be light. The light is expressive of God's desire for life. Darkness is the opposite of that. How do you counsel? I'm, I, am, I oftentimes find myself, people like, start to talk to me, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I'm really not in any way uh, uh, trained as a, as a counselor of mental, mental issues, health. mental health, and, and just sometimes people, like you can see people are either, you see that they're suffering from, from depression, or they'll say to you, you know, I've been depressed, and I've, you know, and it's like you could see on them that it's kind of clinical. It's not just, you know. Well, first of all, if anyone ever approaches you and you have a sense that it's clinical, your first and primary responsibility is get them professional help. Yeah, but how do you Meaning, do that? Um, by saying to them directly. First, we give them the space to speak, and you listen. You want them to feel heard, right? Right. You want, and you want to try to summon up real love for this person, whoever they may be. But at some point in the conversation, it is critical, even at the point of being offensive, saying to someone, "Listen." I'm happy to be there and listen this to you. This happened to me yesterday, but, but the guy said to me, he's seeing a, 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 a okay. psychiatrist, a so, rabbi. Okay, so if that, good. Noel, there's a difference between seeing... No, two a, people. He had two okay, people. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, so if you feel that this person is safe, because I can tell you, and as a teacher and as a, as, a, as a professional out there, I actually have many of these interactions. And, sure. And, and I've been trained that the, the primary responsibility is actually to try to get people professional help because it can truly be dangerous, even life-threatening. But I, I, but, I, but do, do you ever get the feeling that professional help could also be dangerous? Um, depends, and that's a different discussion, and I hear what I you're saying. I get nervous, because I've seen bad but, things. But yeah, okay, it's true. At the same time, the, the thing you want to avoid is feeling that, that you, you're going to save someone else. But the one thing you can always do, and, right. and, and uh, just to make one point, we'll move on, is that the, the greatest challenge of depression is this ability that, not ability, the sense that sets in that there's nothing outside of one's own state. And that's what I meant by the real darkness. So, so part of what it is is to listen and to care. And by that very listening and caring, showing that there is something outside of their state. And then to just push gently toward the places of light. You know, to point out the places of light, to, to, to ask about the places of light. You know, pointing out is, is even already a little bit too aggressive for most people who are in that state. But just asking about, you know, and, and trying to just to be, like we say, be makrin o, right? To just try to, to radiate light to someone um, and caring. So this person says to me yesterday that uh, other than the fact that he's going through a divorce, 
And other than the fact that, uh, you know, he, he's been depressed and all these kind of things, he also says to me, I said, and then I, I like, this is such a, t- a touchy thing because I'm always like, I, my first question is, are you putting on tefillin? Mm-hmm. Because I always feel like one of the things of mental health is like to use this thing in this, especially in this land, that that is the is the kind of Jewish, in my mind, the thing that keeps you navigated, the thing that keeps you on course. It thing gives that, you agency too. It's such an important thing. Take action. Right. And I said to him, "Are you putting on tefillin?" Immediately, he like squished up and he was like, "That doesn't speak to me anymore." And you know, and I, I wasn't trying to be like I wasn't trying to be like judgmental or yeah or fruming him out. But I do recommend this to to people. I say like, put on tefillin. Like, don't forget even even sixty seconds a day. Say Shema Israel and, and plug back into that aura and that energy. And and I want to emphasize what I what I added to that is that that restoring someone to some level of belief that they have agency in their life, even if the religiosity of the act doesn't actually speak to them any mm-hmm. longer, but the sense that there's an action and pushing that actions matter mm-hmm. is actually one of the most important messages you can give. All right. So. Um, um, there, there's now going to be the warning of the of the plague of the firstborn. That's going to happen in, in a little bit. We'll talk about that. And now, um, uh, right, okay, you know what? Let's say it more correctly. S- suddenly, there is a new plague that's on the, on the horizon. And that plague is being first warned of, and then it actually is going to happen. That's the plague of the firstborn. The plague of the first, firstborn is explained in such a way that every house had a uh, had a even if they didn't have a a supposed firstborn, there was a way that they were even either they were he the most everyone. important. Every house had a, a an outcry, and again, never such an outcry has there been in in Egypt. So so even the the pain was you know beyond anything that anybody had uh, had ever seen. And uh, and this time, um, uh, F- Moses and Pharaoh split. They're not going to kind of see each other anymore, and he and, and he leaves. This time, it's over. the The diplomatic relationship, the the ambassador is leaving. He's he's not he's not going to be there anymore. And there's anger. There's anger. There's a chari af. There's the full full anger. Uh, and and God says to Moses, "Listen, uh, don't uh, don't be upset about the fact that Pharaoh's not listening to you. I, I put him there in order to 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 uh, increase my wonders." And and show show off what what I do in this world, and I'm going to and I'm going to harden his heart so that he doesn't uh, let the children of Israel go, and then here's the shift that I was talking about before. Here's the tectonic shift where the book of the Torah is going to have a a substantive shift in the kind of book that it is, and that it's going to and 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 also the Jewish people are going to have a substantive shift. But in just in terms of a book, in terms of a narrative, suddenly this is becoming a book of laws. A book of a book of how to live it, a book of of pre- prescription. It's it's being prescribed, prescribed, not proscribed, right? Yes. A little tricky thing in in English. Prescribed what to do, and of course that mitzvah is is uh, the new month. This month shall be to you the beginning of the months. It shall be to you the first months of the year, the month of Nisan, the month of 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 uh, the Exodus. Uh, of Passover, and in this month, uh, also I want you to uh, take a Passover offering. I'm gonna, I'm basically, you're commanded to take on, and just in the case of of the story of the Exodus, on the tenth, you're supposed to take uh, a Paschal lamb or a, a lamb right in front of the Egyptians' eyes, and keep it for four days. On the fourth day, you're supposed to uh, sacrifice this thing. Take the blood of it, stick it on the lentils on the doorposts, right? 
and that's going to be a famous sign for the angel of death, of the angel of striking of God himself, who's going to strike Egypt, and you guys are going to be spared. Here's a, here's a deep thought, right? In every house, there's going to be death of the Egyptians, but in the Jewish houses where the doorposts are going to be with blood, you would have thought that they sh- it shouldn't have blood. You should have thought it should have, I don't know, flowers and life. This blood, though, on the doorposts represents the birth canal. The birth canal. You're going to come out of those doors, reborn as a nation. Then you're all going to congregate next to the sea, and you're all going to be born through the sea. You're going to come out the other side as a nation. There is obviously a, a kind of imagery of, of the birth canal and of, of a Jewish people being spared and born as a new nation. And at this very moment, a commandment is given, and many commandments suddenly start to follow. Because this is the essence of redemption. It's not just being born again. It's not just the political, cultural freedom. It is a complete shift in the relationship with God. You know, as you pointed out, this is one commandment here, and it's going to be followed by the, the Passover lamb. But just to get sort of a, an overarching view, there are three mitzvot, three commandments in the entire Torah up to this point. And there are 20 in this portion alone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? And, and from here on out, it's only going to grow. Because the, the question is, we know what slavery was, right? Slavery was what we call avodat farech, right? Labor and, and bricks and mud and, uh, you know, oppression. But what's redemption? See, and this is critical, I think, for not just our story, but for us as a people, is that, you know, you come out of oppression, you come out of exile. And how you act will teach you a lot about what you think freedom is. Because if you take your freedom to do whatever you want, well, the Torah is telling you that that's not freedom. Freedom is a shift from avdut to avodah, from, from slavery to service. Right? That, that it's a myth to think that you can free yourself from the need to apply your abilities and your human potential to, in service of. It's just a question of whether it's in service of, of you know, the God of your fathers or whether it's in the service of a strange God. You know, so, 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 so servitude is, uh, is liberated through the work shall set you free? Is that what you're saying here? Yeah, to a certain degree. I mean, I know that's an uncomfortable comparison, but avdut in Hebrew, avdut and avodah, right? servitude and service, right. is, the, is the same word. And that's, right. but no, let's not forget, you know, the, the great injustice of Cecil B. DeMille the, the, and what was done to this story. I don't know if you grew up watching the Ten Commandments like I did. And every year they used to play it on the TV around Pesach in, the, in America, right? You know, what does Moses say to Pharaoh there? Let my people go, right? He chops off the second half of the sentence. Yeah, that they should serve me in the wilderness. You know, the power of that in Hebrew is that they are avadim now. They're, they're slaves. And what God is telling us is that we need to go do avdut or avodah. And that's the question. You see this, by the way, it's the core of whether a person's going to live a healthy relationship as a Jew. And, and that ties back what you were talking about, about action and putting on the tefillin. Yes. It's like, uh, it's like liberate yourself through, but it's not a simple concept. You have to flush it out for me. Uh, I mean, can I flesh it out this way? Yeah. So if you look in the Rambam... I just want to sh- yeah. sharpen the question, which is you're saying... Uh, I'm just, there's like a leap there that I, I, want, I want tying up, which is what you're saying is like... we were, And the Torah says this. We're going to replace servitude with service. Yes. Okay? That's yes. The, the English way of saying that. Uh, and, but you're, you're claiming that that's real freedom. Yes. Okay? But I'm thinking... I'm thinking here's, my, here, here's like a... You know, nice pushback. Jewish, right? Nice Jewish kind of, uh, you know, liberal communist type of things. I'm saying, like, saying, 
We just we just threw a, a you know one slave master in favor of a new one. Right. We're still enslaved. Just yes. now to all these weird commandments to an invisible God who's taking us through a crazy desert. Yep. Which, by the way, if one experiences that way, it will indeed will be one more form of servitude. And sadly, there are many Jews who walk around right. who, who are committed to the mitzvot as a form of servitude. Right. Right. And that goes to the core of what exactly was the oppression. It saddens me. You know, it saddens it's, me. It's, it's heartbreaking, but, but yeah. it's an old story. Right. Because you know what the oldest place you can find the story is? I find it best articulated in the Rambam. If you have ever looked at the Rambam's laws of Avodah Zarah, mm-hmm. of idolatry, but of course what's important for our discussion is Avodah Zarah literally means strange worship. Right. I mean the worship of that which is other than you, right. something which is from the outside. You look there in the introduction, he tells a whole story about Avraham and how Avraham came to know God at a certain age and he taught God, he taught about God to his son Yitzchak and to Yaakov, the whole book of Rashid that we have been speaking about. And then the Jews went down into Egypt and they almost lost it. Because of the oppression of Egypt. In the mind of the Rambam, the oppression of Egypt was not building with bricks and mortars. The oppression of Egypt was adopting a worldview which was not our own. It was losing sight of the ultimate truth of the history of Am Yisrael, which is that there is only one. And that in service of that one, I come into myself. It's not a foreign service. God created me to serve him. And can you see maybe that God is also saying to us Jews, you're not really the freest people in the world. It, I disagree with that. I, I, I'm just, yeah. I'm saying, look, you were born, you have two options in this world. You have three options, but you could either, you could either be in the service of the self, in the service of the other, i.e. slave, or in the service of the self, or real freedom is in the service of me, but you Jewish people, like, you're, you are B'ni B'chori Israel. You are the firstborn. You are actually mine. You are here to, you're here to be my, my workers. My, my servants. My servants. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. By the way, that reason I was pushing and back know, is because that's, that's the definition. or not, but That is truth. the definition of freedom because anything else is a myth. You mm-hmm. already said it. Everybody, as another wise Jew once said, everybody got to serve somebody. And like you said, you're going to serve someone else you're going to serve yourself, right. right? Or you're going to serve God. Right. And the only real question is, is what is the image of that God you're serving? Right. And that's why our absolute obligation through the mitzvot is to figure out how I, in my individuality, am an expression of the divine will in the world and how I bring that together with the mitzvot in order to push the world toward redemption. Remember, our coming out of Egypt was a setup of the pattern for the ultimate redemption of the world are coming back to this land and setting up a nation state with all the warts and bumps that we're seeing every day of what it is to actually be a people with a land and an economy and an army, etc. That's in order to show humanity it doesn't have to come from outside. It doesn't have to be some miraculous event. We saw that round already, and it has its problems, which we'll speak about when we get to the golden calf. Right? It's to show us no, no, that we can, in service of our highest ideal of God, actually fix the world. And yes, that doesn't mean that you always get to do what you want but you know what the reality is you have children how often have you heard your kids say to me i just want to do what i want right is 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 that really what it is to be a human being no it's what it is to be a child at best and there's a great danger when there are people who of full physical maturity walking around just children in the world wanting to do nothing other than what they want you know Zara in the mall in the Mamilla Mall is having a big sale, <laughs> and I and I came there. I saw a lot of people working there. I'm like, are they Avodah Zara? Is that what's going on here? Is there are they Zara? Of the Avodah Zara, are they working at Zara? Does that mean that they're idolaters? Furthermore, what once one thing happened to me at Zara this week. Well, an interesting thing happened that I I I found in a in a tefillin bag of mine an old Chabad 
uh, uh, Torah portion newsletter. And it was exactly from six years ago from Parshad Bo. Wow. And I saw it this week, and I'm like, whoa. And I hadn't seen it in all this time, and it was exactly crisp. came out exactly there. And I read this incredible thing. The ra- a rabbi about 200 years ago visited Eretz Yisrael, and he came back. And they were like, no, how was it? How was it? And he said, everything there is pretty... Uh, 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 you know, run down and 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 uh, doesn't look good, and it's all disheveled and broken and uh, what's it called, crumbling, falling down. He said, but one thing is as fresh as it was two thousand years ago. It looks just the same, exactly, absolutely brand new. And they're like, what? He's like, sinat chinam. He's like, the hate between Jews that's still alive and well, perfectly preserved wow. the way it was before. And then it said that the first Lubavitcher Rebbe issued an edict. I don't know if it was based on the story, but around that story is he's like, because people were starting to travel to Eretz Israel, so he said, listen, the one thing I'm, I'm admonishing you not to, to watch out for is Sinat Chinam, Sinat Chinam. And I was at Zara when I was in line and I was buying this T-shirt that I'm wearing here. Do you see this uh, fatigue T-shirt? Yes. Okay? So I was, <laughs> it was on sale for 29 shekel. I couldn't not buy it. So, uh, and I needed to, to somehow drown my sorrow in, in what do they call it? In, uh, in uh, what, retail therapy. Re- retail therapy. I needed that. So I, I went into Zara. Things were on sale, you know. And, um, and, and, and I was in line. And I had a long day. It was 7.30 at night. You know, me and you are, are early risers. Sure. 7.30 at night is already my brain. Not a great like, time. I just, I just want to buy this t-shirt, dude. And, and the lady behind the counter was maybe not going super fast. And she was talking to her manager. And the guy behind me, he's like, you guys are having a nice conversation here while we're standing in line. And then she turned sour. And she's like, I'm doing my work. And the lady behind her, her manager was like, we were talking business. And here I am standing there. My eyes are just like, dudes. Come on, dudes. I do not I do not need this right now. Let's just be nice. And they were like, and it was bitter. And she says to him, Tia Bari, you should be healthy. And he's like, I am Bari. And she's like, Baruch Hashem. But it was more like, I hate you. I hate you. It was like, it was like, I was like, I don't need this. I don't need this. I just want some, you know, some happiness. It's a hard life out there. Yeah, it's 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 you know, the little moments of of uh, of foreign service, uh, service of idolatry that happens in Zara. But I still got the shirt on sale. So Baruch and the sages do say that there's no greater form of uh, idol worship than anger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's and and we have to have. And since then, since that little incident and that piece of paper, I have taken it upon myself to stop hating the many people that I hate. And and it's been feeling really good. It's been feeling really good. I have found. Uh, I, I have been. I I exercised. I ate some salad, and I've been thinking gratitude, peace, and what's my third thought? Uh, and thank no thankfulness. Gratitude and blessings. Those are those are now these thoughts that I think, and they kind of unlike. If you come in here and tie dye next week, I'm kicking you out. <laughs> I'm in fatigues, man. I know. I'm, I'm still fighting. Okay. Any case, uh, so so so, and all that is really part of part of you know seeing the root of 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 godliness in the other Jew, and the fact that he's your brother, and the fact that he's had a hard day. And so on and so forth. All right, folks, you are listening to the Ishai Fleischer Show, Land of Israel, the Land of Israel Network, land of, thelandofisrael.com. Write me an email, Yishai, at thelandofisrael.com. I love your emails. There's many more that I have to read. We're going to keep going. Time, time is, I know, running a little bit short, Rabbi Mike Foyer, and I thank you again. Here we are at Beit Midrash Sulam Yaakov. You have another show on this network uh, called The Jewish Story, uh, and also uh, there are podcasts here at Sulam Yaakov, Sulam Yaakov. everything I do, you can find me at uh, Rav Mike Foyer on Facebook. Rav Mike Foyer. Rav Mike Foyer. Join him on Facebook and also sulamiakov.com. Uh, and, and I'm going on the road soon. I signed up to be a speaker. I know you're looking at me like what? I'm insane. 
We'll talk about it another time. Where to? Uh, potentially to the great states of America. Signed up with whom? Uh, the Jewish Speakers Bureau. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know those guys. All right, very yeah, good. Yeah, I'm going to start peddling the book. going to be famous. That's good. Very good. All right, good, good, good. That's a good lady over there, Jewish Speakers Bureau. Um, all right. Um, um, let's, go, let's get to the next thing. Pesach offering is, is being taught to us, and it's also a Pesach offering. Uh, there's two Pesach offerings. There's the one at that time and the one for generations. We're going to learn both those things. We are, we're also going to learn one more thing, which is, uh, I found an interesting correlation that that God had to explain to Moses the, that what the new moon looks like when it is that you're supposed to sanctify it, and it really says the exact same thing that it says in Rashi about the menorah that that Moshe had a hard time understanding it. God had to point it out to him. Also, the half shekel. Remind those me? three things when 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 God spoke to Moshe about the half shekel donation that everyone had to give to the sanctuary. Those are the three things it said. Ze, as right. if God were pointing directly to it in the in the direct object. I you have to show it to him. You have to yeah. show it to him because these are new things. The new things in the new modes of relationship. Right. Right. There's, there's. My son says to me the other day, my little boy, five years old. He says to me, Abba, I don't let them call me daddy. I'm against mm-hmm. that. Okay. I do not allow that. Okay. So my boy says to me, my mom, my wife doesn't mind mommy and all that. She, you know, she's from America. I'm just like I'm Abba. Anyway, so he, we share that. Yeah. So he says to me. He says to me, Abba, who is a greater tzaddik? This was great. He says to me, Moshe Rabbeinu or Avraham? That's what he said to me, Moshe Rabbeinu or Avraham. And I'm like, oh, you nailed it. That is so the right question because really these two people, and, and right now what you just explained is really these are two people that enter new modes altogether, mm-hmm. new modes of relationship that, that hadn't really existed before. So they're both on the cutting edge of a new time. By the way, we're also on cutting edges of new time. Yes. The, we're living we're living in cutting edges. Where neither of those models is completely fit to what we want to be. They need to be integrated somehow. What do you mean? Well, in the progressive world loves Avraham. Right? Avraham is always moving forward. Right? He's not bound by anything. Right? And the religious world loves Moshe. Moshe Rabbeinu is our teacher. He brought down the law. We can live inside that. We live in a world right now, as you've coined this phrase, progressive restorationists, where we're trying to move forward, but we're trying to move forward in a way that can actualize a future that is a, um, a embodiment of the ideals we've held since the past. And yet it has to be new. We're not going to, backwards. We're not trying to make America great again like it was once upon a time. We want to make Am Yisrael great like we've never been before, right? And so there there's, is a new model of the righteous that I don't think we have. And this is one of the great challenges of our time is that we can grow and build upon and learn from the Torah and, and, and the rabbis and them, but we are we're off the map. We're in we're in uh in wide open territory and it's it's exciting and it's scary. Certainly that's true within coming to the land of Israel and that's also true with the technological revolution. Absolutely there's many things that we're like right on the front lines of and and we cannot look backwards to look at our parents or our, or our grandparents to give us real real direction here. Well, here's something crazy. My wife goes to uh, a wonderful parenting class every week with this uh, Rebetzin, Haredi Rebetzin here in Neve Yaakov. And she, who, this Rebetzin is very close to the Gedolim, the great rabbis of our generation. She speaks to them all the time. And they have told her that to, in our day and age, a, a new generation is born every five years. Wow. Because she's teaching women who have teenage children. And she's telling them, and many of the women in my wife's class have many, many children, and they have other teenagers. And she's saying to them, ladies, I don't care what you did with your teenager five years ago. They are not the same anymore. Wow. Just the pace of change. Think about it. Wow. One of the things that, by the way, I think that uh, I have, I have, I, I don't know if I figured this out or just, I, one of the things I'm, I'm starting to identify is that in the, mo- for the last 
either 5,000 years or 5 million years, humanity has had to try to find calories to survive. And now we constantly are trying to deal with too many, too many and how to get rid of calories that we've ingested. That's, that's well, the first don't, let's not forget there's a good two thirds of the planet that doesn't have that problem, but okay. Okay. But, but, but uh, is it two thirds really? But, yeah, I think probably. Yeah. Uh, in any case, our, our world, our realistic, the people who are listening to the show, the people with the iPhone, yeah. they, they are, they have they, too many calories. Right, not, they they not probably have an app also about how to get rid of calories. Uh, so that that's never happened be- before. Uh, j- just the amount of light that we have at night is something that we never had before. Not to this extent. Not even close. And there's many, many, many other things uh, that that we've never had before. So we're we're definitely uh, on the on the front lines uh, of change. This is what they uh, call the postmodern era, my friend. Right. But one thing that I've realized about about raising children is that. Life has also always been about a certain amount of hardship, mm-hmm. and suddenly there's really not that plug-in of hardship into life, and that's weird for human beings. Well, what I found is we reconstruct it in complex emotional struggles. You mean like 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 some kind of soap opera? Yeah, like that 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 in to some degree the things and the things which bother me, which which cause me real problems in my day that. Are are nothing. To even call them first world problems is is an exaggeration. <laughs> you mean you mean you can't hear the TV over the crunching of the chips in your mouth? Right. No, no. Like say say my 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 uh, power cord breaks or you know like uh, I, I can't figure out how to make the phones in my recorder work. You know like we're speaking about. Before. I couldn't get to the widget page on my phone. I was like, what, you know, is what, this? what is going on right now? And and so what happens? The emotional charge is is there. But then right. what happens is we're all aware of how absurd that is. Right. So there's a whole guilt dance right. and judgment that goes around it and 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 i have this sense that like you said a certain amount of hardship is absolutely necessary and that's why people like coming to hebron in part yeah they like the holiness they like that but then for the first second they're just like whoa this is raw this is raw this is conflict and there's something very soothing about that like the world has meaning because there's conflict everybody makes out like war is bad and peace is good which is true that is true but but war also conflict reminds us of who we are reminds us of what's important reminds us about how precious life is well you know the the problem in that statement is that that peace is not the negation of conflict and that's where the non-jewish notion of peace as as just that has led us astray you know you look into the teachings of our teacher and master of cook and he will show you exactly that when we say talmidei chachamim marbim shalom ba'olam that 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 you know, that the wise increase peace in the world, he points out it's because they disagree. It's through their struggles with each other, but their absolute commitment to a unified um, approach to truth, meaning everybody's after the same thing, but from from infinitely different perspectives. And it's through bashing them together. It's through the constructive conflict. Look what you're saying now. You're saying two things today. You're saying, one, service of God is freedom. Mm-hmm. Not freedom is freedom because freedom is not freedom. Freedom, freedom is, is a myth in terms of I get to do whatever I want. It's also ennui. It's boredom. It's it's self loathing. It's it's there's a lot of things that happen with total freedom. Yes, a, a commitment to God is freedom, uh, and and argumentation and conflict and a certain kind of cutting the teeth and and a certain kind of friction. That's actually peace. Yes, absolutely. Is that is that is that interesting? And Shabbat, by the way, uh, which is which is all kinds of frameworks and laws is real freedom. Right, is real freedom. By the way. Speaking of modernity, how or post right post modernity or or or, or hyper modernity, whatever you want to call it, how important has Shabbat become? It's it's like it was never more relevant. Never, 
Never. So much so that people who have no interest in the religiosity and the commandedness of it, the, the idea of unplugging has become critical. Right. They talk, they talk about the internet Sabbath and it's a whole thing. Okay, and sure. I wouldn't be surprised if it's Tel Aviv that's going to be the first Shomer Shabbos, total Shomer Shabbos city in this world. That's my dream. By the way, you see in this the wisdom because if you look in the early literature, the halachic legal literature, it was very unclear to the sages of their day why electricity would actually be forbidden on Shabbat. And right. there were many who made an argument, no, no, there's nothing wrong with it. But the overwhelming opinion was basically, no, 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 bad news, we'll figure out why later. Right. <laughs> you know, and you see the wisdom today. Wow, it's amazing. Uh, but just a little thought about that. Israel portrays itself always as the startup nation. But in some ways, we're the power down nation. Yeah. That's Shabbat, right? Yes. Shabbat, is, that, that, that's what has kept us going. Oh, let it be soon, let it be now. Amen. All right, let's, let's finish up here with the 10th plague. Uh, the death of the firstborn and Pharaoh's surrender. Let me just read this in English. It was at midnight that Hashem smote every firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh sitting on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and every firstborn animal. Pharaoh rose up at midnight, he and all his servants and all of Egypt, and there was an, a great outcry in Egypt for there was not a house where there was no corpse. He called to Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, go out of my people, even you, even the children of Israel, go and serve Hashem as you have spoken. Take even your sheep and your cattle as you have spoken. And by the way, parenthetically, I forgot to, to mention this, taking the sheep is the ultimate act of defiance. Your God is not a God, it's a sheep, and we're going to sacrifice it. That's, of, of course, to remember that the sheep was an Egyptian God, so the ultimate act of defiance and also the act of courage on the Jewish part. Like They're actually taking not just God's locusts, but I'm going to now take a, a sheep into my house. That's saying to the Egyptians, you know, uh, we, 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 know, we, we, we no longer... We're not afraid. We're not afraid and we don't see you as the masters. Yeah. And he says, and Pharaoh says, and bless me as well. Throw in a little blessing for me. Because well, he's also firstborn. He's the yeah. only firstborn that didn't die. Right. Say a little mishaberach for me. Really appreciate it. Can I, can I add something about the firstborn? Just one more second um, and, and then, and then I'm going to give it to you over. Egypt uh, imposed itself strongly upon the people to hasten and send them out of the land. For they said, we're all dying, so get out. Uh, the uh, the people picked up the people I the Jewish people picked up uh, their dough before it could be leavened their leftovers bound up in their garments upon their shoulders the children of Israel carried out the word of Moses they requested from the Egyptians silver vessels gold vessels and garments Hashem gave the people favor in the eyes of the Egyptians they granted their request and they emptied Egypt that's right and the element of firstborn here is I think so critical because it's noticed. You mentioned before that God actually has Moshe go and announce to Paro at the beginning of this whole process, B'ni B'chori Yisrael, that, that Am Yisrael is my firstborn child. And here we have the plague of the firstborn. And then we're going to get this repeated theme in many places, but certainly here at the end of the parsha, Kadesh li kol b'chol, peta kol rechem, right? right? You should sanctify to me all of the firstborn. You know, this actually is what it says in our tefillin. Together with the declaration of God's unity in the Shema, you ask many Jews, sadly, even ones who wear tefillin, what does it say in your tefillin? Most of them will come up with Shema, but many are missing the significance of this first one. Why is it inside the tefillin that it speaks about redeeming the firstborn, I mean, sheep, not just people? And why this theme of firstborn? I, I think it's actually quite simple, is that as much as this is a story about the liberation of Am Yisrael, on a deeper level, it's a story about the transformation of the relationship between God and creation. Because you have children, I have children, and it's important to remember that when your firstborn child's birthday rolls around, that it's your birthday as well. Because that's the day you were born into the world as a parent. 
And until Am Yisrael comes out of Egypt, this idea of that relationship to creation doesn't exist yet. And so God, in bringing Israel out of Egypt, actually enters into a whole new relationship with creation as a whole. He'll be apparent to everything after mm. this. You know, just like you're a parent to all your children. God will be a parent to right. everything after this. Right. But, but every parent has to learn to love one child at a time. Or this person you mentioned happened to have two sets of twins, too. But the point Adam, still stands. Adam Phoenix. Yes. Yeah, so that, that, um, that it's not that God loves Israel more than everybody else and there's some exclusivity, etc. No, no, no. That's like this myth that you want God to be some impartial judge. You don't want God to be an impartial judge. You want God to be a parent. And every parent knows that you learn to love. And then you extend that love to everyone. And so therefore, this moment of Am Yisrael being born into the world as the firstborn, taking with it that previous ancient world of the Egyptians who happen to be firstborn you know, because they're an old empire. And God's saying, no, 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 I'm choosing my firstborn. And then you now will sanctify yourselves forever. You will bind it as a sign on your arm that, that I love the world. Like a father loves his children. I love you. And because I love you, now the whole world will know I can love them as well, not mm. as some impartial judge, but as a parent. That is very deep. I like that very much. And the tefillin, uh, which is, I looked up the word phylacteries in English. It is not a good word. Amulets. It, yeah, it's, but it's like a, it's like an avodazara type, uh, 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 idolatrous type thing. Well, by the way, one time, one time I was on a trip in Australia and I was touring around with some Irish people. And Irish Catholics, I think, and and I was uh, I put on tefillin, and the guy got freaked out. He he literally was like, Whoa! yeah, he was he thought I was possessed or doing some kind of shame shaman thing. I don't know. He was like freaked out. Really, well, we are witch doctors. I, yeah. Anyway, um, speaking of witch doctors, you, you know about the uh, the Jewish lady who was sitting in the front row of uh, of the um, inauguration of of the first Jewish president, and she looks up at the guy. She looks at the guy getting becoming the the president. She turns to the guy next to him, the guy next to her, and she says, "You see that man? His brother is a doctor." Aww. All right. <laughs> On that note. All right. Let me just finish up by saying the following: that that the tefillin that I was just mentioning is also uh, a a tool of memory. It's a it's a tool. Uh, it's a mnemonic. It's a device for memory. It has obviously other other properties, but one of them, and which is discussed, is the issue of memory. This is very interesting. As, as this moment is happening, which it is written of, that it is a rushed moment, it is a harried moment, a hurried moment, uh, at that very moment, God says, and Moses will tell you, guys, I want you to remember this. And in fact, I'm going to create all kinds of, and the Torah is going to go many different words to say this is a memorialized day. For example, Moses said to the people, remember this day on which you departed from Egypt, from the house of bondage. With a strong hand, God removed you from here, and therefore chametz may not be eaten, uh, uh, unleavened uh, leavened bread. Today you are leaving in the month of the springtime, and it shall come to pass when Hashem shall bring you to the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, which he swore to your forefathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall perform this service in this month. For a seven-day period, you shall eat matzot, matzah, and on the seventh day, uh, there shall be a festival to Hashem. So so there is this whole thing, and it's also tied into the tefillin, uh, there's, there will, you have to, I'm already telling you right now, in this moment where you're like rushing, 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 this is a moment to remember, take a snapshot, remember it, and when you get to that land across across the uh, across the great desert and across time, 
there will be a memorization a memorization memorialization of this event through this holiday of Passover, through the firstborns, through the matzah, through the paschal sacrifice, and through the tefillin, and through even saying it every single night, remembering the Exodus. And through, most importantly, teaching it to your children. Mm-hmm. Because really, memory is not about what happened in the past. Memory is about taking the story of the past and building it in our life in the present in order that it can get us to the future. So the most important thing you can do in order to remember something properly is tell it to your children so that they'll carry it forward. That's right. And, and that goes back to a lot of the things that we talked about today, about a little bit about depression and a little bit about uh, darkness and a little bit about also about, about raising children and, and tensions. And, 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 in, and in this story is also a story of tension. It's, it's to give the kids a little bit of like, we, you know, and I, what, by the way, one of my great uh, disagreements with the modern liberal education system is that the Holocaust, which has been so taught, has been completely not taught. There's all these museums and all these things, and yet somehow the exodus of the Jewish people through the fires of the Holocaust and into the land of Israel, this great miraculous moment has been turned on its head, and all these museums are completely fluff. You come out of these things not at all hating evil, fighting for your rights, understanding the importance of Israel, and understanding Asking the hard questions. Right. It's like, like, oh gosh, wow, I guess we're all a little bit evil, and that's the end of the story. Right. It's It's like such a failure. Where's the Holocaust in our lives? Yeah. It's weird. Well, I told you that that I feel like to go back to where we really started is that that's the that tension and that sense of the shoe other dro- the other shoe dropping is that no matter what we live in the shadow of that event. And yet we live in such bright sunshine, Baruch Hashem, is that it's easy to forget, but that together is what creates that sense of anxiousness. Well, that brings the show to a close, or this part of the show to a close in any case, the, the beautiful sunshine in Jerusalem, and it is beautiful and sun, sunny in Jerusalem. Come be a part of it in any way that you can. Come for the summer. Start making your plans. Start making your plans for Pesach. I will be at a hotel. Uh, what's the name of the hotel? Neve Ilan through Eddie's Travels. Uh, Eddie's Kosher Travel. Check it out. It's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I see some uh, of our friends walking around with wheatgrass. Uh, there's, there's beautiful health to be had here, spiritual and physical. Check out the rest of the shows on the Land of Israel Network, thelandofisrael.com. Check out Rabbi Mike's uh, uh, Rav Mike at uh, on Facebook. Uh, Rav Mike Foyer. Rav Mike. Rav, Rav Mike. Mike. Rav, Rav, Rav Mike on Facebook. Uh, write me an email, Ishai at thelandofisrael.com. Also, thanks so much to Moshe for uploading all the shows and and, and managing uh, the the broadcasting of all this uh, to uh, Ben Bresky for editing, to Tabitha for, for really being uh, the woman behind the scenes. Thank you so much uh, to all of the folks that make it happen. Thanks to all the folks that donate uh, to make this show happen. Uh, and thank you to God Almighty for the opportunity to talk Torah. What, a, what, an, what an amazing blessing it is to talk Torah from Yerushalayim. May we have even the smallest part of that. Uh, and finally, thank you to you for, for taking the time to listen. Stay tuned because I'm going to take you to a protest uh, and a lot of smart people explaining where we are really in time and why we're protesting our own beloved uh, country's action, intense stuff. But intensity is good. We just learned that intensity really keeps you alive. So stay tuned, stay strong, stay connected. Rabbi Mike Forrest, Shabbat Shalom, and thanks again. Shabbat Shalom, God bless you all out there. Stay tuned. More great stuff is right up. So be strong and don't touch that dial. And shalom. The best place to stay in Jerusalem is at Windows of Jerusalem Vacation Apartments. Check out their website, www.windowsofjerusalem.com. They've got beautiful one, two, three, four bedroom apartments in the best location in the city center with the most beautiful, breathtaking views. And I mean breathtaking. I've stayed there a number of times myself. 
And I'm telling you, there are few places anywhere in the city where you can take it all in to this degree. The view, the location, the great apartments, plus the wonderful staff will truly make you feel at home in Jerusalem. Book your stay now at windowsofjerusalem.com. All right, folks, well, I'm at a demonstration, a rally right outside of the Knesset. Beautiful, sunny day here. A lot of young people are demonstrating. I haven't been at a demonstration uh, in a long time. And this is about a very tiny little community called Amona. And that community sits atop of a Jewish community in uh, southern Samaria called Ofra in the Benjamin region. And it's slated for destruction because... A small part of the town of Amona may be on some land that is being disputed, although the, the provenance of which has never been actually decided. Uh, there, was a, there is a law that's being passed right now to kind of normalize places like Amona. For some reason, Amona cannot be uh, 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 included in that, incorporated into that law. And some are even saying that that law itself is going to be uh, overturned either by the Supreme Court or by the... Uh, by the uh, government attorney and I wanted to speak here with a, a familiar face who's always at events like this Jeff Dalby who is the uh, Israel desk director of the ZOA the Zionist Organization of America and he's always on the front lines uh, Jeff tell me a little bit about what we're doing here with all these these young high school people these flags and, and next to our beloved Knesset well uh, we're here uh, Yishai uh, right next to the Knesset which by the way I'm going to in order to lobby members of Knesset about this issue immediately after this demonstration. Uh, this is all about something called the regulation law. The regulation law would legalize uh, these communities, uh, would make normalize these communities, and allow uh, the residents uh, to know beforehand exactly what the status of the land is that they reside on or that they want to reside on so that we can avoid situations like the Upana and we can avoid situations like Migron and by the way Amona 2007 when they destroyed nine houses I was there in 2008 and saw that destruction let's avoid Amonas in the future the only way to do that is to demonstrate and to tell our leadership here that this cannot happen they are responsible uh, for the welfare of the residents of Amona. Okay, now the, one of the biggest problems that we're facing in the Amona story is that there seems to be a kind of an apparent lack of reasonability. Let's say that the provenance, and that's a word I've recently learned, the real kind of ownership, the real, the, the real background of, uh, 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 of Amona is in question, that maybe really it is, a part of it is owned by some Arab landowner. The normal thing to do in most democracies is to pay compensation. To pay compensation. Find out who the owner is, explain to that owner that they'll never actually live on that parcel of land, and that if it was taken, it was taken by accident. Here's compensation. Maybe the state should compensate the, this owner. Why are we calling, why is the state of Israel calling for destruction uh, of a small community that was sent to, that, that was... Uh, recognized by the government from the get-go, uh, in, in a sense sent there by the government. Why is it that, that the Supreme Court is demanding the destruction of this town instead of the normative 
action to deal with a case like this, which is compensation. Uh, uh, let me take it one step further, Yishai, and it's because of you, Yishai, that I'm taking it one step further, because you and I were in a diyun in the Knesset together uh, some weeks ago, and you asked me a very good question. This uh, situation here has evolved because of Jordanian land law, because King Hussein decided that he was just going to parcel out uh, plots willy-nilly uh, back in the 1960s. And uh, I, we can't even be sure uh, whether the owners who claim that they're the owners are really the owners. Why are we respecting Jordanian land law if it was an illegal occupation. And every single country in the world said it was an illegal annexation in 1950, except for Pakistan and the UK. So why are we respecting this? Let's take a look at it from the point of view of Israeli land law. So I, I would go beyond what you're saying. What we have got to do is we have got to clarify exactly what the status of that land is. I was up there last Sunday. Uh, the leadership in Amona invited me up to check uh, the situation out there and to ask me to advocate for them. I have been advocating for them. I'll continue to advocate for them. Uh, but they need clarity. We need clarity, whether it be in places like Nativa Avot or whatever place we're talking about. We need clarity. That's what we're asking for. Jeff Dalby, um, <clears throat> you're talking about clarity. <clears throat> One of the things that is clear is that the young people that are here today and the protesters are all Zionists. They love this country. This is in no way an anti-Israel rally. This is a pro-Israel rally uh, calling for healthy democracy, calling for, for normative uh, behaviors. And yet there's a sense, I think, and I've received a few stickers along the way here, that basically want to drill down to what the real problem is, and that is the Supreme Court and some of the ways that they look at things, which are not in consonance with, I, th I think, the will of the people. There's the, 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 the question here is not really about Amona. It's really about the behavior of this part of government, which somehow some people accuse it of, of, of kind of electing itself. And some people are, are saying, listen, there are, there are tribes in this country, in our country, in our beloved country, and, and the tribe of the Supreme Court is somehow not in consonance with, with the tribe of uh, the majority of people. What do you say to that? I uh, could not agree more with you. I just had an interview with somebody else where I said exactly that the Supreme Court has aggregated so much power around itself uh, that th I told them that they really should uh, take the Supreme Court building that's just a few blocks away from us and move it to the building, the Knesset, that's just to the right of us now. Because they have immersed themselves to such a degree in legislating legislation or legislating or ruling about legislation that we might as well as replace the Knesset with the Supreme Court. Uh, so I think that you are hitting at the core of the issue here, the power of the Attorney General. The power of the Supreme Court by far exceeds the kinds of checks and balances that many of your listeners are probably used to in the United States or the UK or some of these other countries. Right, and, and the United States Supreme Court 
It's got to have a case in controversy. It's got to come up from the lower courts. A, 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 a grieved party has to have standing. And the Supreme Court can only really take constitutional cases. It has to check if it can even take a case. And if it does take a case, it's called writ of certiori. And that's the only way that it could actually accept a case. Here, the Supreme Court seems like it accepts cases willy-nilly. It doesn't even actually need a case. It just decides, I'm going to judge this thing. It doesn't even have a case that it's, that it's deciding on. It doesn't have to come up through the lower courts. It just says... Uh, this famous phrase, everything is justiciable, and, and that's a situation that we have here. And so <clears throat> the, the demonstration that I'm seeing here today, I haven't seen a demonstration like this in a long time. What, what, do you think there's efficacy to this demonstration? Do you think it's important for us to be out here? And now that we're walking a little bit over the, the hill, I can see that there's really thousands and thousands of people here. There's a lot of media here covering it. Uh, do, do you think there's a, there's a purpose other than just to kind of air out our uh, air out our upsetness at what's going on. Do you think there's going to be any political efficacy? Uh, look, uh, Yishai, you and I are all about uh, drilling down, deconstructing, unpacking, uh, parsing, whatever you want to call it, all of the, or analyzing uh, all of the details of the law and, uh, let's say, the checks and balances that do or do not exist. And we can have that conversation for hours, but the young people, the thousands of people that are here right now, understand the situation on the most fundamental level and this is why this is important they get it they understand that there is a fundamental injustice that is being perpetrated right now and that is what they are protesting against it's important to understand that that they get it intuitively okay uh, so that's why i'm here uh, not sitting uh, with my articles and analyses of the law right now, but uh, being here with them, showing support for Amona, so that, like I said before, there will never be another Amona again. All right, Jeff Dowby, we're walking right now uh, past the Prime Minister's uh, office. People don't know that's a huge building on its own. It's, it's a kind of mini-government within the government. The Knesset is now behind us, and we're climbing to the right towards the Rose Garden. Uh, there's a lot of flags of Israel here. There's a lot of people saying, we are Zionists. We love this country, and we think that our country is going uh, in a wrong direction. And my, again, I, I want to ask you now more politically, is this rally have political impact? Does it have an impact on the lawmakers? What, what political, uh, um, if Amona falls, God forbid, uh, wh what do you see happening? Do you see a government falling? Do you see changes in, in the next voting? Like, like the, wh what's the seismic political uh, under, undertones that are happening here? Well, uh, first of all, when it comes to, let's say, the politics, especially in this country, uh, I hesitate to make predictions uh, because making predictions here about the political situation, either you're uh, a complete fool uh, or you're a false prophet. Uh, so it's very hard to say what will be. But I can tell you this much. When numbers like this turn out, and these are prospective voters in 2018, 2019, uh, I think that the government, especially the nationalist element within the government, is going to have to sit up and pay attention because this already constitutes a sizable voting block. And if you uh, know that thousands of people have shown up here today, you know that there are also tens of thousands of people who were not able to show up. They understand that up in that building over there, and hopefully they'll respond accordingly. 
All right, Jeff Dabby, let's hope that they respond. Let's hope that the God of Israel also uh, hears our prayers. We're, we're trying to move this country forward uh, in, in, in various ways, including back to strength, back to a sense that this is our land. We're entitled to this land. We've been given this land. We've been promised this land. we fought for this land. We have every right to this land. And other people's... Uh, don't have that same right, and we should totally push back on all those false claims and, and make it clear uh, that we're back home. Uh, let me just say, finally, that uh, this is a work in progress. Uh, sure, we've been here close to 70 years right now. I think we've made phenomenal progress. There's so much good in this country, but it is a work in progress, and we have uh, some flaws, and we're working on them. This, perhaps, is one of them right now, the situation with Amona. Uh, but la'at, la'at, slowly, slowly, we are going to make, continue to make progress and uh, turn it into the state that I think we all envision. Right, and I, I want to echo your words and just explain to, to folks out there that this is a rally against a diseased, wrong way of thinking, but it is a Zionist, pro-Israel rally. The general sense here is positive. Our country is moving ahead. Jeff Dalby uh, of the ZOA here in Israel, making a tremendous impact, lobbying our Knesset uh, and helping uh, write, uh, kind of write, uh, straighten out the wrinkles in this incredible project called the, the Rebirth of the Jewish People in the Land of Israel in the Third Commonwealth. Jeff, thanks so much. Thank you. All right, folks, we're still here uh, in front of the Prime Minister's office, taking a right up towards the Rose Garden, which is across uh, from the Knesset. That's Israel's parliament. And I'm here with Raoul Whitliff, who's the Times of Israel correspondent at the Knesset. Uh, Raoul, uh, what are you seeing here at this rally? I see a lot of high school kids. I see a lot of kind of classic faces that are standing up against the idea of shrinking the land of Israel, of, of, uh, of pulling out what you would call easily the right-wing crowd is here. Uh, I look to you a little bit to give me a sense about how the rest of the country and the rest of the Knesset are seeing this. Well, it's interesting because right now, as we speak in the Knesset, the uh, Law and Justice Committee is finalizing the bill that will legalize outpost settlements um, and effectively... Um, allow them to exist for the first time in 50 years to say that from now on if settlements or land is built on on area that is defined as private Palestinian property it will not have to be removed and this is a huge a seminal moment for the for the settler mo uh, movement at the same time that process has failed to prevent or so far failed failed to prevent the upcoming evacuation of Amona and uh, that's obviously hugely symbolic the uh, Nearly 10 years ago, the, uh, the evacuation was, there was very violent. It was the first evacuation after Gush Katif. It holds a, a lot of symbolism. And here, the people here are obviously coming to say that uh, despite those efforts in the Knesset, it's not enough. It hasn't helped. It hasn't prevented uh, the evacuation of Amona. Around the country, the, uh, the, uh, the, the debate and the, and the discourse is really about that bill in the Knesset and what the future will be for it. Amona is seen as a, a side issue, although the evacuation may be painful or, uh, or disturbing for many people. In the end, um, this bill will, will have a, a huge effect for the settlement movement and for, uh, for many of the people that are here today as well. So basically the idea is, is that Amona may fall, but future Amonas will not fall if the settlement bill goes through. But I wanted to ask you, I, I met somebody there, a guy named Tzachi from, I think, Rashid Bet, uh, one of the Israeli uh, radio correspondents here. He says to me, 
the politicians are totally faking this. They know that their crowd wants them to pass this bill, but they also know that the Supreme Court is going to overturn it, and so therefore they're not taking the brave step of taking uh, this bill off the table. They're just going to pass it, say, look, we did everything we could, and they're going to let other f other um, elements here in Israel undermine that bill and under um, undermine any law that passes. What do you think about that? According to most legal experts, the really the only way to prevent any future evacuations is annexation. Um, this bill, the Attorney General has already said that he won't defend it in the Supreme Court and, and he is the you know the government's chief legal advisor and his job is to defend defend these you know laws that are passed by the government. He said it's, it's indefensible, he won't be able to. Um, so you're right, many people are saying that this this bill is is some some form of a you know public relations message to say we're doing this e even though Amon is going to be uh, evacuated we are making a big difference when in the end it might not have any uh, any real long term effect because it could be struck down by the Supreme Court and that's important because that's another battle that the that the leadership or the coalition um, will uh, are gearing up for um, to say. You know, we passed this, we're the ones that are trying to make a difference, but the Supreme Court, they're, they're the ones stopping us, even though from now it seems like it's, uh, it's set in stone that it's going to be struck down in any case. So you brought up two macro issues. I know you got to keep on reporting there. It'll get to take me a few more minutes with you. Uh, you brought up two macro issues that are bigger than this Amona and even this bill. One is the issue of sovereignty. And there's already a discussion in the Knesset about, about, about asserting sovereignty or asserting Israeli law over places like Malay Adumim and Gush Etzion. Malay Adumim first is one of the slogans that, that has come up. And the other uh, similar, uh, similarly sized giant um, giant macro issue is the issue of the Supreme Court versus Israel or versus what some people here will say they don't represent it, the, the real democratic Israel. They're anti-democratic. Their laws are unreasonable. For example, the, 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 the decision to destroy Amona is unreasonable because it should be done through compensation, not through destruction. So these are two, like, like the, the tremors here are not just about Amona. They're really about a, a potential course change with especially the Trump administration, which may be more favorable towards an annexation kind of regime. And also the Supreme Court being this element that, that is or is not acceptable upon the, the body politic of Israel. Well, that's the, uh, you know, th those are the real, real debates behind this, as you said. Many of those questions um, you could direct not necessarily at the, the Supreme Court themselves, but at, at the Knesset. Um, there is a path to... Uh, to prevent future evacuations like this, and that's annexation. Um, that's not being pushed by the government, at least that's not being officially pushed by the government at this stage for various reasons. The Supreme Court, there is is debate over their over the, their mandate and uh, the fact that they're, they're not elected, but they've uh, it, they've said clearly how they would approach this law, and it's clear by all legal experts that there is a way to. To, to prevent future evacuations that's not being pushed forward by the, by the Knesset. You're right, there is uh, the backdrop of, uh, of the Trump administration um, and potential moves of, uh, of future annexation, but we, uh, we're yet to see how, uh, how the Trump administration really is going to, going to treat Israel. Right, there's a lot of questions here. Raoul Woodliff is uh, the Times of Israel Knesset correspondent. Great to see you here. And uh, let's all hope that... Uh, Israeli democracy and the, the state of Israel will continue to flourish even through this kind of trying moment uh, where the, the, there are tremors uh, about, about the direction of the future of this country. Thanks so much. Thank you.
Nadia Matar is the co-chairperson of Women in Green and also the, the founder of Sovereignty Magazine and four conferences in a row, this fourth one coming up, talking about the issue uh, of sovereignty, pushing ahead what really is the underlying theme here in this rally. It's not really about Amona per se. It's really much more about uh, what is the future of Jewish rights in Judea and Samaria in the quote-unquote West Bank. Nadia, you're one of the key people. I recently sent the BBC to talk with you. You're one of the key people who's talking about with clarity what actually needs to be done, not the partisan issue of, of, of Amona and making sure that it doesn't get destroyed, but really the grander vision, a direction for the Jewish people for Israel. I'm not uh, one of the key people. I'm together with a bunch of people. I'm for, first and foremost with Judith Katzover, the my co-chair, and who's the one who really thought six years ago that the time has come to stop for our national camp, to stop constantly saying no to the Palestinian state and not giving an alternative. You can't go on for years, which we have done, unfortunately. No to a Palestinian state, no to giving them weapons, no to caving into terror, and not saying what our yes is. So yes, we built and we built. We, Baruch Hashem, have 750,000 Jews, including Jerusalem, over the Green Line. But that's not enough. That's not a, a, a vision. What is our vision? And then you did uh, rightfully says we have to make a campaign with what our plan is. And the plan, the one and only Zionist plan, is the application of Israeli sovereignty over Judea and Samaria. That has been a message. People thought of us like crazy at the time six years ago. They said, well, focus on building. That's enough. Don't make trouble. Don't make waves. And thank God today... Towards our upcoming conference on February 12th, we made a poll, and we have a poll where 75% of the Israeli public are in favor of uh, uh, sovereignty this way or that way, whatever, how, however applied in different ways, and only 7% now are in favor of a Palestinian state. So the word sovereignty has been put into the minds of people, and not only of people, but also of the government of Israel. The majority of the Israeli ministers are in favor of sovereignty, again, whatever way, because there are different ways of applying sovereignty, whether it's gradually altogether, but we certainly together with other people who spoke to about this before us, we don't take the credit we started the campaign, but people like Caroline Glick and Martin Sherman and uh, and Mike Weiss, and, and of course Uriel Itzur, uh, blessed, blessed Memory and others have already, and Ariel Dad and others have written about it we are all together, we formed this forum called Sovereignty Now and we are uh, hopefully going to achieve it and especially now we have a window of opportunity we have the Trump ad, uh, administ friendly administration. It's the end of the PA. Everybody knows that the PA is going to dismantle very soon. It's going all hell is going to br break loose there. It is 50 years to the fact that we have not uh, 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 announced what we want with Judea and Samaria. The ten, it's 50 years since the liberation of Judea and Samaria. The time has come in these coming days and months to apply sovereignty. All those factors together give make it the best possible time for doing what we should have done 50 years ago and that is uh, our message Nadja Matar uh, 50 years ago can we move into the sun I'm freezing here uh, 50 years ago uh, we had an incredible moment 1967 six day war capturing Judea and Samaria capturing the Sinai and the Golan Heights Eastern Jerusalem uh, and yet a lot of people understand that, that there was a lot of missed opportunities there. There was a lot of missed opportunities to push out enemies of the State of Israel. There was missed opportunities for annexation. Now you're kind of showing a constellation of the 50th year, the will of the people, the destruction of the PA, and of course the Trump administration, which seems ostensibly to be friendly to the annexation idea. But 
a lot of people, my friends, are saying, are we the ones who are going to blow it? Are we the ones who are going to miss the opportunity? And I kind of want to ask you that. Like, do you see the country ready to take these aggressive, relatively aggressive to the policies that we have till now? Are you, do you see the country ready to take these steps? The people are ready. Most of the ministers are ready. The question is whether Bibi Netanyahu is ready. We have to give him the strength to be ready. We know that in his heart, he's the one who wrote a book. Not in his heart. He's the one who wrote the book against the Palestinian state. He's the one who knows. For eight years, he has suffered under a terrible, terrible uh, persecution by a pro-jihadist uh, 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 U.S. Uh, uh, president who persecuted Bibi personally and also who persecuted all of us being a uh, Obama, being a, 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 a pro-jihadist. And we have to give Bibi Netanyahu the strength, the, the, the credit for having stood up to that terrible person. But now, uh, so he was good for preventing bad things uh, from happening. Now we have to make sure Bibi not, not only... Uh, acts on the defensive, but also acts on the offensive and takes an initiative of doing what the majority of the people want to do. That's exactly the, the problem. When you're on the defense, it's one thing. When it's time for you to actually make policies, another Najim Matar Sovereignty Coalition, Sovereignty Conference, Sovereignty Forum, that's the right word, and the conference February 12th. I will be there. Noam Arnon from Hebron will be there. A lot of great people are going to be there. And even, Ar even Arabs who want a Israeli sovereignty and not a Palestinian state will be there. Things are changing. We are special times. We unfortunately are meeting at Amona. We hope that Amona will be saved. And one of the ways to save all the rest of the country and Judea and Samaria is with sovereignty. Now. Najim Matar, thank you so much. All right, folks, we're here uh, at the Amona rally, which is right across from the Knesset at the Rose Garden. Lots of young people sitting on the grass, beautiful sunny day, kind of a winter sunny day, uh, cold, crisp. A lot of people sitting on the dais, and there's going to be a lot of speeches about the rights of Jewish people in the land of Israel. Yossi Dagan from the Samaria Regional Council is talking about the fact that he's been to America now, and everybody's asking the biggest, the bigger picture, which is Jewish rights in the land of Israel in general. Maka Fleischer uh, is my wife, show hostess with the mostest, and with me at this uh, rally, uh, at this demonstration. Maka, how, how are you feeling when you see all this? Um, I have a lot of different feelings. I, you know what my, my honest like my honest first feeling is boy there's a lot of good looking Jewish kids. That was my first feeling was like I saw these kids they look so healthy and they're like cute and pretty and strong. They were dancing in the street before um, and they're just like they're here they came out you know they uh, at their age I was super out to lunch politically and these kids are you know involved in the things that they care about and the things they think are important I think that's beautiful they left school for a day you know and I uh, I respect them I I have I participated in the protests against the expulsion for Gush Katif which were massive million people protests um, and they did nothing basically right so I am cynical when it comes to protests in Israel but nonetheless, I think it is very, very healthy that these kids are not cynical about it, that they feel like showing up in front of the Knesset means something, that their voice should be heard in Israel and that it can be. Um, and that's like, aside from the Amona issue, that's kind of my first reaction. There's a big flag of Israel being waved right now. And there's definitely a sense that that although there's a, a conflict here, there's a, there's a 
protest here. It's a Zionist protest. There's definitely a sense that there's positivity towards towards Israel. And these people feel like they have justice on their side. These young people and, and, and the speakers, they really feel in their heart that they're right, that this is going to lead to strength. This is going to, this is actually part of justice, that we have every right to this land. And that the people who are pushing uh, us to destroy these communities are either foolish, naive, cowardly, or even up to evil. What do you think about kind of the atmosphere here? You know, the atmosphere I get, again, I have like a different, I don't know, I'm, I feel like I'm having a different angle today because... Um, you know, the feeling I get here is that these people really care about Amona. They think it's ridiculous that Amona's going to be destroyed, especially given the circumstances. But again, like the feeling that I get from people is that this is very important, but that even if they fail, it's just not at all going to break them. You know, the, I kind of live online. I do a lot of Facebook and Twitter and things like that. So I see how people react to um, political upheaval. For example, what's going on in the United States right now with, the, with Donald Trump, who is a wild character, the new president of the United States. And the reactions I've gotten from some people are like, this is, it's pretty much the end of the world for some people. Now, here we are talking about people whose literal homes are going to be destroyed, whose government is going to let them down, who, who this is going to practically affect them personally and the progress of the country as they see it to go. And the feeling that I'm getting from people is like, this is a very important issue, but we're just 100% going to keep going with whatever it is we're doing. Even if we fail with this, we're literally just going to go on being beautiful, grow up, get married to the other guy who was dancing down there with the Israeli flag and have eight babies and then those kids will be having eight babies that kind of that's the kind of atmosphere that I feel like is going on here and while it is important to speak up for Amona it's vitally important and and it's literally important for the security of of people in terms of life and death because the messages that we send to the world and to terrorists make a difference between whether some dude goes out of his door with a knife in the morning or not um, at the same time you know it it is doesn't feel like anything that is going to break after this, whatever goes down. There was one critique of the interviews that I did, and that was David Bedeen's critique, is that we're a little bit too inside ourselves. Somehow we've become uh, uh, too tribal. It seems like, like this, this event is a very kind of limited tribe of people who are concerned with their cause. And yet if you ask anybody here, they really will say, tell you that they believe that there's, this is a general cause. This is true for all of Israel. This is, you know, getting rid of Amona or, or destroying communities and dangerous. All of Israel holding on is good for all of Israel. Uh, but somehow uh, we're not able so easily to cross certain cultural tribal lines uh, that, that, that really don't make these things... You sometimes wonder, like, are we talking amongst themselves? Here at this rally, it is literally that we're talking amongst ourselves. And, and that was a critique that I, that I think there's, there's, there's truth. Though, that we've got to somehow unite the Jewish people more around certain issues. And I wonder if we're united around their issues down there in Tel Aviv. 100%. Um, there is a disconnect. I think there are t there's a couple issues. You know, this is a tribal issue, I guess, Isha. You know, this is like the destruction of a place in Samaria. Um, but you may notice that it's not like all of Samaria is out here either, meaning to say that uh, there are several hundred people here, and that's the, that's the extent of it, let's just be honest. Um, and so we haven't managed to galvanize even the people who should be our political low-hanging fruit to come out here, let alone people who are like, all right, you know, sad, 15 houses, but I have work today or I have a test today. You know, they're not going to come out. Um, 
Judea and Samaria has had, a, since its inception and even before, it has had a difficult PR problem, um, both because the people who maintain the reins maybe don't have the vision necessary, and also because not everyone can relate to the intensity that we feel about these swaths of land. Um, and why? And there is most certainly a religious component for most people. There are definitely non-religious Zionists, but mostly today, Zionists are at least somewhat religious somewhere inside. Um, so, so that's one pro problem. And another, pro the the PR problem is a big problem. And also, we haven't managed to convince people in general that the Amona issue is urgent. All right, uh, but we are trying certainly, and and I think there's more than a few hundred here. I think there's a few thousand, uh, but you're absolutely right that we got to we got to bring this out. At the same time, you're also right about the about the light of the in the eyes of these young people here. They really feel like they can change the world. They have deep values, caring. Uh, they are they are they are organic there's something very wholesome and organic about these people uh, and as we, we ironically today you and I are looking for schools for our son and daughter and we're looking at these people and, and there's a part of us that's just saying we hope that our kids turn out like this there's there's a pride in the fact that there's such an organic uh, uh, a youth that cares about issues that's coming out to these kind of issues today um, and of course God has also given us a beautiful day uh, to see the Jewish people to look at our own Knesset and to feel a little bit of pride even though if it's a little if if it's pride even in the fact that we have a democratic process that we have to have civil conflict and, and, and a demonstration at the same time there's a pride that we're even in this time past the Holocaust past 2,000 years of exile and into a place where we could stand in this beautiful rose garden and complain to our Knesset that we want a different direction Maka Fleischer, thanks so much for being with me out here at the Amona protest uh, in, in the heart of Jerusalem, next to uh, Israel's parliament, the Knesset. Amen. Nishai, you know, if, uh, if we don't win today, and I really hope we do, and I think it's very, very important, but uh, if we don't win today, we're definitely going to win tomorrow. All right, folks, you heard it here. We're, st we're, on the, we're on the road to victory, and it's, of course, because nothing can stop God's dream. Folks, stay tuned, stay strong, stay connected to Israel. Be part of the protest. Be part of the voice. Be part of the story. Don't let anybody push you down, knock you down. We're living in incredible times, and we're part of an incredible, incredible process. Stay tuned. More great stuff is on the way. God bless you. Shabbat shalom, and be strong. Have you ever planted a grapevine? What if the grapevine happened to be in the land of Israel? Not only that, but if you were a Christian planting this grapevine in the mountains of Israel, you would be fulfilling prophecy that Isaiah and Jeremiah foretold more than 3,000 years ago. I'm Joshua Waller with Hayuvel, and I invite you to fulfill prophecy on the mountains of Israel by joining us this harvest. Go to Hayuvel.com, that's H-A-Y-O-V-E-L.com for more information. Jane.